Now, here's a word you might come to say has defined our times, neoliberalism. It is, of course, derived from the word liberal, which literally means free and generous. But is that what neoliberalism really is? What is this thing called neoliberalism? Now, here to discuss this with me is Professor John Quiggan, who is a University of Queensland Laureate Fellow. And he's also a author in the book we have just released, of which I am a co-editor by Springer, uh, Sustainability and the New Economics, in which we discuss uh, neoliberalism. And John is also the author of a book with one of the best titles I've come across in, in an economics book, uh, Zombie Economics, How Dead Ideas Still Walk Amongst Us. And you have a new book out, John, which is Economics in Two Lessons, Why Markets Work So Well and Why They Can Fail So Badly. Hello, John. Hi, how are you, Ron? Now, your chapter in the Springer book, uh, I think is really good, and I just reread it. Can you um, tell me what neoliberalism actually is? Sure, it's a complicated story. First, of course, as with most terms, uh, it's just used by some people just as a general pejorative for anything they don't like about society as it stands. So I'm going to dismiss that and say, nonetheless, it is a, a useful term. As you mentioned in the intro, it comes out of liberal and liberal itself is a, is a complicated term. Different streams of liberalism have produced different versions of, of neoliberalism. So the, the main one we talk about is really uh, the European meaning of liberal with a big focus on free market economics uh, and neoliberalism as a revived version of that, of that tradition after it was in eclipse for most of the 20th century, eclipsed by social democracy and, and socialism. But there's a second meaning coming out of the US where liberal means something different, um, much closer to, say, social democrat, uh, and where neoliberals uh, are really... Uh, third-way social democrats like Clinton and uh, Bill Clinton, that is, and, and Tony Blair. And so those two usages get mingled together, sometimes confusingly, along with, as I say, a, a general sort of uh, a general sort of statement where any public policy you don't like can be called neoliberal. But um, those two versions of neoliberalism represented, say, in the UK by Blair and Thatcher, have really dominated, uh, dominated politics in the capitalist world, really from the 1970s, the end of the big social democratic era, up to the global financial crisis of now nearly 15 years ago, and now staggers on, as my book says, in this zombie form where it doesn't really deliver the goods, but we haven't yet seen a coherent alternative. So it started out primarily as a social philosophy and it somehow morphed into an economic one. What are the main features of that? Hmm. Well, classical liberalism, the European version, was very much in favour of free markets uh, against, the, um, against the aristocratic uh, uh, rule of the past against, and uh, against things like government policies of monopoly and so forth, uh, also hostile to things like trade unions uh, and supportive of a minimal so-called night watchman state. That was pretty much eclipsed in the 20th century by the rise of the welfare state, the failure of neoliberalism, in the Great Depression, in the first half of the 20th century generally, made room for the development of the welfare state, 
the rise of a mixed economy in which both governments and the private sector had a significant role. When that model ran into trouble in the 1970s, we saw a resurgence of this kind of free market economics. Uh, but it couldn't simply go back to the way it was because no one was willing to give up the benefits of things like public health, old age pensions and so forth. So the neoliberals had to argue that by transforming these things into market-driven institutions, they could do a better job than uh, the state-based social democracy of the 1970s. So we saw privatisation, contracting out, uh, various forms of attempts to uh, privatise, for example, retirement saving and so forth. Uh, so that was uh, really uh, that shift. And uh, the people who pushed this through, uh, most obviously Thatcher, weren't at all interested in you know, what you might call social liberalism, uh, range from being actively, you know, but not caring very much to being actively hostile. Well, they talk about free markets, but free to who? Uh, good question. I mean, the, I mean, this, of course, is a criticism of all forms of liberalism that uh, they depend uh, they depend on a state uh, to, to order the uh, to create the institutions and enforce the property rights that underlie the um, underlie the uh, the operation of the market. Uh, so that's uh, the more sophisticated neoliberals more or less accept that. A, a lot of others, though, really just say. Um, uh, say, uh, well, it's free if business gets to do what it wants. It doesn't really matter very much. Um, uh, it doesn't matter very much about other kinds of freedom uh, or about whether, for example, markets are competitive and so forth. Uh, roughly speaking, it's, it's, it, it can shade into a simple uh, class interest of, of business. It's been picked up by centre-left governments around the world, or at least it was. Mm. Uh, what's the appeal of it to them? So um, I suppose you have to go back to the crisis of the 1970s and people whose views were formed at that time. So we had an upsurge in inflation, which um, certainly had more direct effect on the political class than unemployment did. So you know, people who were forming public policy, whether on the left or the right, were usually not drawing unemployment benefits, but they are all faced with dealing with inflation and with the various disruptions that caused. Uh, in addition, you had what's uh, been called the fiscal crisis of the state, that essentially uh, the state had grown rapidly in terms of the things it did in the decades after 1945. Uh, in the US in particular, uh, the attempt to keep that expansion going with Johnson's Great Society program and run the Vietnam War, uh, created this uh, huge growth in, in the size of the state, which required, uh, required an increase in tax revenue, which was delivered largely through uh, bracket creep as inflation pushed people into higher tax brackets. So all of that was, uh, was unsustainable uh, and, um, and the and this was the chance, uh, the response from, you know, notably people like Milton Friedman picked up by Thatcher was to say, well, uh, they've got these things wrong and this is the way to do it right. So I think um, people, you know, people in the centre-left essentially accepted that view but said, well, we can do it in a kinder and nicer and gentler way. Uh, that's not you know, what I've called soft, that's what I've called soft neoliberalism. Uh, the Hawke government in many ways was, was the first to try this kind of, this kind of thing. Uh, in some ways, a necessary adaptation to what had uh, 
to what had happened um, uh, in the 70s, uh, but giving very much too much ground, for example, to the financial sector. So there was a concern about the growth of government and does it matter really? And uh, what's happened since then? Well, I mean, I think it matters in the sense that you have to have a balance. You know, in the, certainly the mixed economy story had a, a balance between the private and public sectors, but with a sort of expectation the public sector will keep on growing. Uh, the um, uh, neoliberals wanted to roll back the state uh, really with what really those two, the underlying forces which were pushing for larger state, the growth in demand for services like health and education, ran up against the desire of neoliberals to hold the state back. In the Australian context, uh, we had now almost 40 years ago, the so-called trilogy commitment of the Hawke government, which was to restrain growth in government spending and taxation as a share of GDP. And that's more or less uh, stopped the growth in, in the size of the state, but not rolled it back. So ever since then, the Commonwealth government has taken 20 to 23 to 25% of, of uh national income in tax revenue, spends about that much, uh, depending on how you classify things like the GST. So the neoliberals, uh, particularly the soft neoliberals, haven't rolled back the state, uh, but they have um, uh, they have stopped it growing and they've got the state out of all sorts of activities uh, that they were involved in, sometimes rightly, but often I think wrongly. A lot of it has got to do with taxation and attracting uh, large business into countries across national borders. Would you say that's one of the key drivers? Well, certainly uh, a central part of the of the crisis of the 70s was the breakdown of, of the Bretton Woods system of fixed exchange rates. And a central part of that system was what you might call financial repression, keeping the financial sector small, tightly focused on the basic tasks of taking people's savings, lending them out again either for housing or for business uh, without any significant role for things like bond markets and so forth. As that broke down, uh, the financial sector became massively more important and the need, certainly the perceived need to, uh, to please financial markets was a central element in the view formed by social democrats that uh, they really had no alternative. And of course, uh, Thatcher's phrase, acronym TINA, there is no alternative, was one statement of that. But you can see it in more social democratic people like Thomas Friedman's so-called um, so-called golden handcuffs that you have to, or golden straitjacket, that you have to fulfil the requirements of, of bond markets uh, before you can do anything in relation, for example, to social welfare policy. So the power of financial markets and the belief that they got things right was a central element of, of policy, of, of the policy framework during particularly the 1990s when everything seemed to be going well. Uh, the global financial crisis really killed off that idea for most people. You know, it followed a bunch of financial smaller crises in around the turn of, the, turn of this century. And of course, we're seeing now absolutely ludicrous things happening in financial markets with cryptocurrencies, meme stocks, and so forth. Uh, but that the idea that financial markets in some sense represent impartial judges of, of the goodness of investment decisions, I think, which was part of the mental furniture of, of the neoliberals, I think no one now believes. Well, now that the world is facing dire environmental stress, climate change, and so on, What's been the effect of neoliberalism on that? 
A good question. I mean, so so soft soft neoliberalism has an answer to this, uh, carbon taxes and so forth. Uh, uh, But what we've seen, I think, um, what we've seen, I think, is there's no longer enough strength there to carry things through. Meanwhile, what I call the hard neoliberals, which is the Liberal Party in Australia, the kind of things of the Liberal Party in Australia uh, and Republicans in the US and a significant faction of the UK Conservatives, can see that um, a response to climate change is going to involve a substantial government intervention, at least in the form of, of price policies, and is retreated into uh, retreated into denialism. So we see that as very much the dominant theme in, in the uh, National Party and most of the Liberal Party here and the Republican Party in the US and so forth. So a hard neoliberalism really has no answer at all to, um, uh, to uh, climate change, and its only answer has been denial. Uh, and I think what's happened has been... Um, uh, that uh, it's been overtaken on the right by by uh, things like Trumpism, which you know, essentially abandon any attempt at intellectual coherence and just say whatever whatever they want want to think. Uh, at the same time, the soft soft near the soft near liberals increasingly uh, are being attacked from the left by by green greens and independents of various kinds, as we're seeing in Australia. Now, in your uh, chapter, you give a fascinating account of neoliberalism, so-called, in the United States, especially with the past Trump administration, and now we have the Biden government. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, what we see, I think, is that um, you know, if we go back as recently as as the 2000 election, although it was very tight and, um, and turned out to be consequential, uh, the general view at the time was that there was really going to be very little difference, in t- certainly in terms of economic and social policy, uh, between a Bush administration and a Gore administration, that they were both essentially soft neoliberals. Yeah, Bush had a line in compassionate conservatism and Gore was, was very much a soft neoliberal in the Clinton mould. Uh, what we've seen uh, is, um, is first that already that was dissipating on the... Um, on the uh, conservative side, we've already seen the, the emergence of the themes that became Trumpism. Uh, on the um, on the Democrat side, uh, I think uh, we we saw the global financial crisis. Obama still continued to push on essentially with soft neoliberalism, and in the expectation that that he could form some kind of coalition with. Uh, sensible people on the, as as you would define, the sensible centre of the Republican Party, uh, but that that completely dissipated. So, and the experience, the experience then, the lived experience of most people uh, under under the age of fifty or so, are too young to experience the inflationary crises of the early seventies. Uh, but say millennials, people that have come of age in the twenty first century, I has been one in which in which. Capitalism's really performed pretty badly, and that's driven the support of of the neoliberals to the right to Trumpism to just look. We're just going to do whatever we feel like with no regard to market logic or any of this kind. And on the left, to much more concerned with the environment and much more willingness to contemplate um, uh, substantially radical innovation. We saw that, I think, in the agenda that Biden unveiled. But of course, because the Congress is perfectly evenly divided. He's been had very little success in pushing that agenda through. 
Now, the uh, the GFC had a big impact on governments around the world, obviously, with enormous injection of government money into the markets. And now, of course, we're living in the pandemic and we're seeing governments behave very differently to what uh, classical neoliberalism would say. What's uh, is that? Is that right? And what's been the effect of those things? Well, it's a good question. I mean, what we see is um, still, even after all this, um, an instinct to return to normal. Which I mean, I mean, you can listen to uh, Josh Frydenberg or, or Chalmers, and they're both still talking budget repair, both still trying to get back to that that previous framework. Uh, but I think uh, the degree of the, the faith in that um, uh, the faith in that uh, system has really has really dissipated in monetary policy uh, after the global financial crisis of course interest rates went to zero nearly everywhere and um, and there was again the expectation that well this was a temporary thing and we go back to normal but even before uh, COVID it became clear that wasn't going to happen and so we're seeing now um, a recognition that uh, we're never going to see uh, positive real interest rates again in all probability and that really undermines a whole, certainly the most basic understanding of capitalism, which is one in which without thinking about shares and equities and complicated financial transactions, if you have money, that's capital, you can invest it, get interest on that money, and that's what capital and capitalism is about. Uh, that, that, I think, has completely fallen to pieces uh, since the global financial crisis and particularly since... Uh, uh, since the um, pandemic, it's clear that even if nominal interest rates rise, that we're not going to see positive real interest rates uh, any time in the future, which really means we're, we're sort of in the dark as to where to go uh, with, with the kind of fiscal and monetary policies which characterise the neoliberal period. What would you say the greatest failures of neoliberalism are? And to be balanced, uh, would you say there are any successes of it? Sure. Well, I think the big failure was the idea that handing over large amounts of power to the financial sector would lead to improved allocation of resources. Uh, so the notion was that financial markets would get investment decisions right, whereas governments hadn't. Uh, that in turn implied implied the case for privatisation, uh, that privatised firms would perform better because they were subject to market discipline, uh, and a belief that um, a belief that things like uh, uh, the ratings issued by bond markets were of vital importance. So I think that's uh, that's something which um, was particularly characteristic of neoliberalism, neoliberalism compared to earlier periods of, of of liberalism, and has been has been uh, the most comprehensive failure. Uh, combined with that, uh, repeated claims or assumptions that somehow or other. Uh, neoliberalism will tame the business cycle so we didn't need Keynesian intervention. So that proved to be wrong at the time of the GFC and at the time when we came to COVID, nobody waited to find out if it was wrong. Everybody splashed big amounts of money into the system straight away. So those are the, those are the big failures. I think, I think you, have to, you have to say, uh, yeah, that there are plenty of things, plenty of things from the social democratic era that, um, uh, that, in retrospect, represent an overextension of assumptions. Um, uh, yeah, for example, I think yeah, uh, 
the, you know, the belief that government, you know, an implicit sort of belief that government enterprise is always better than uh, private enterprise has been replaced by, by the return. So there were plenty of stuff, plenty of things that uh, governments got out of as a result of neoliberalism that they'll probably never go back to. Um, you know, owning airlines, for example, uh, seemed like a good thing for governments to do. I doubt it. occasionally they've had to go back to it. Uh, but that's probably not something not something governments are going to do again. As far as as far as uh, labour markets go, I, I think uh, the belief that the labour share could be pushed up indefinitely. You know, we had you know, vast numbers of strikes and so forth towards the end of the social democratic era. Uh, whatever we do in the labour market, we don't, I think, want to go back to that. So there was a bunch of overreach, I think, uh, in the social democratic era. Massively overcorrected by neoliberalism, but but uh, I don't think it's simply a case. I don't think yeah, I don't. I think there are reasons why uh, those policies failed and why we didn't simply go back to them. So I think you're saying that uh, the form of neoliberalism that we have seen over the past decades is probably gone. But where do you think it will go now? Well, that's a good question. I think um, I think uh, the the kind of agenda that was, um, you know, that Biden put forward, and that to some extent, uh, to some extent, informs responses in the EU, which is still, you know, very saturated neoliberalism, and in some sense arrived there later and still is more influential. Uh, those kinds of things are the right way to go, but I could see, uh, you know, I think, an equally plausible account uh, is a sort of Trumpist crony capitalism. And in that sense, of course, Australian conservative governments have learned that part of the lesson very well. They're not, not fully Trumpist in some ways, but in terms of the idea of uh, uh, government is there to do favours for your mates uh, in business and to kick your enemies, um, that, yeah, I think we've seen, again, you know, seen that, uh, that view of things of a, essentially a, a corrupt crony capitalism as the alternative from neoliberalism uh, on off, yeah, absolutely on offer from from Trump, uh, very much so from Boris Johnson. Yeah, we've just seen today you know, news of him blackmailing MPs, saying you know, no government money for you unless you support me, and, and of course uh, the Morrison government has done done those kind of things here. So that's the sort of right wing uh, identity, you know, dominant identity politics where you keep keep people in line by remind by saying. You, know, you white Christians are the important people in society, so you should vote for this policy. And meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, using government to uh, buy the support of, of of the rich and powerful. Do you, do you think that one thing that the uh, pandemic has demonstrated is how dependent we are, the public is, on government services, and that will change uh, public opinion? I, well, I think it, it certainly sharpened up that divide. So, of course. That's the correct lesson to learn, and I think the one the majority of people have learned. But of course, we've also seen uh, on the Trumpist side an upsurge in all manner of of loony anti-government conspiracy theories. So, um, and, and that's yeah, that those have their influence. Yeah, for example, within the current government here. Um, so yeah, I think I think that has demonstrated, um, but. Um, uh, but we we have yet to see how that will actually play out. Um, I think what we've seen, you know, in, in nearly fifteen years since the GFC, is that 
as, as the title of my book implied, these ideas are very, very hard to kill. Well, John, I think we've covered a lot of the ground on neoliberalism. Is there anything else that you want to add that we haven't talked about yet? No, I think um, I think yeah, we I think I'll just say um, yes. Politics is the slow boring of hard boards. Where we said we're going to be pushing on for a very long time, I think, and we have to. I'll say yeah. Hopefully, we can get progress in enough time to stabilize the global climate. Uh, then we have to move on, I think, to dealing with the other residues of neoliberalism. Well, that's great. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.